Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome everybody to episode 11 of Teeth and Titanium. Oscar, we're slowly rounding in on that annual episode, almost one year of the podcast. How are you doing? The streak continues. I know. I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, you mentioned the streak. We've been able to do this every month without interruption. And although it's only once a month, I mean, you know, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. We kind of have to coordinate our schedules to record if you get edited. Um, Obviously, our good friend Tony Shahadi kind of reviews the episodes. Make sure they're kosher yeah. for the greater audience. You know, we're not being too, too controversial. Yeah, exactly. So I, I do find, although it's once a month, it is a lot of work, but it's it's a good pace. Anything more than once a month would be too much. Yeah, and it's like you have to take into account it's, this isn't the only thing we're doing, right? Like you have your fellowship that keeps you super busy. And I'm in a couple, the first couple of years of my practice, which also keeps me super busy. So it, it is time consuming, but it's fun. And it's nice that we've been able to get to where we are now. Exactly. And I think one thing that we're able to do is for some of the guests even going forward or if we know we have major time constraints coming up or hopefully one day for you know travel and vacation and things like that oh i can't wait we can uh maybe pre-record an episode or maybe take a break we'll see we'll see how things go but for now it's really nice doing this once a month and i'm happy that we're almost at one year of the podcast speaking of time constraints so you know tomorrow my wife and my child are arriving back in charlotte that's huge they, huge you know, the for one you. month trial yeah, yeah the one month trial went well apparently i was a good parent so she liked it down here and we were able to manage with the, you know, the fellowship schedule and the baby and her. So they're coming back tomorrow and uh, staying until the end of the fellowship. And that's just exciting for you guys as a family, right? Like, I know you're, you're growing so much in your training this year, but now you're also going to do it with your family around you. Like you're, you're not going to miss all these little milestones with, with your little one and with your wife. That's super exciting. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, they were here and then in the time in the few weeks that she left to go back to Canada... She was messaging me and sending videos saying, oh, guess what? He started to roll around now. Yeah. So I'm like, well, he wasn't doing that when he was here. It's <laughs> yeah. all this development going on. Yeah. So definitely will be a time constraint, but super excited about that. But before we talk about anything else, let's jump into current events. So Oscar, we mentioned my family. We mentioned some current events. And, you know, recently this year, I've noticed a trend of you kind of taking over the shameless plug. I know. You kind of announcing these big current events. Last episode, you know, all of a sudden you're a homeowner, getting ready to move in there. You're just doing these big milestones. I feel like I was just getting left out with all the big things that were going on in your life. I needed to catch up. <laughs> Fear of missing out. Well, I hope that's not the inspiration for your next announcement, but I think you did have some news you wanted to share with the podcast. Yeah, I, I hope that's not the reason because if not, I'm going to get in a big trouble when she listens to this. But yeah, after seven years of waiting... I finally got engaged. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Super exciting. She's the nicest human being, the, the most awesome person I know. And really, there was no reason to keep progressing. That's just my personality. But yeah, so we're super, super excited. We just got engaged. So the funny thing is, you know, my reaction and every single person's reaction that I told, because I told my family, I told my wife, I, you know, I was spreading the news because everyone knows you so well and likes you. The reaction I got from every single person, especially, you know, my parents as well, they were like, <laughs> it's about time. Yeah. Like, like a hundred percent, like literally you're not even joking. That's the reaction everyone has said to us. It's like, <laughs> we're so happy for you. It's about time. You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's funny because, you know, obviously we've talked about this and, you know, even when you started dating and then you're kind of saying, oh, you're getting more serious and you see this long term. And I had always said to you, oh, you know, well, when are you going to propose? When are you going to do this? And, you know, people might think you were just procrastinating for seven years. But actually, when I look back on our conversations, you kind of followed the plan you were telling me about. You said you wanted to graduate, you want to do it in residency, maybe get settled a little bit. So you actually kind of did follow your plan plus minus a year, I would say. Yeah, exactly. And and she's super understanding about it, too. Like, we were pretty honest from the beginning that we wanted to have our life in order before we moved on to the next step. And honestly, me and Lexi have been pretty much married for, for four, five, six years. We've been living yeah. together for five. So nothing really changes from our eye. But it is it is a big step in everybody else's. So we're excited about it. Yeah, that's that's super exciting. I guess your next fear missing out moment will be, you know, our next podcast. Maybe I'll have a baby in the background. And you'll be like, do I really want that in my life right now? <laughs> well, let's let's slow that one down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once, yeah, it took yeah. you seven years to get here. Yeah, let's go yeah. one step at a time. Let's not go crazy. 
<laughs> well, a huge congratulations to you. Obviously, we were super pumped, super happy for you. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will be happy for you as well. And you're kind of taking that next step uh, in yeah. life, which is awesome. Home ownership, engagement. It's been a busy year. It's been a busy year. Yeah. 2021 is already looking better. Oh, way better than 2020 for sure. <laughs> already looking better. <laughs> yeah. The next topic we wanted to talk about was this whole concept of the GA day in private practice. And the reason this, this topic came up organically between you and I is I was telling you about one of the things at the fellowship is we have a medical anesthesiologist on staff and yeah. him and his nurse, they kind of rotate to the different offices and people have GA days each day. So some of the cases are major cases. So, you know, we've talked about doing jaw surgery in office, TMJ surgery in office, yeah. big, you know, big major surgery cases. Yeah. But then what we wanted to talk about is using it for other things. For example, sometimes you'll have a GA day that's just dental alveolar stuff. Maybe it's a morbidly obese or really sick patient that needs dental extractions. Maybe it's a full mouth clearance, alveoplasty. Maybe it's a little bit of all on four or zygomatic implants. Maybe it's kids, young yeah. kids that just need baby teeth out or simple things. And what you say and, out of all that, that's all your bread and butter stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of stuff where just having general anesthesia would help not only for patient management, for patient safety, also just kind of removing the anesthesia out of the equation. You can focus on the surgery. Yep. Sometimes patients will be more comfortable if there's a medical anesthesiologist there. So I was telling you about this in my experience and having that here. And you mentioned at your private practice at Crescent, you guys also bring in a medical anesthesiologist and you, you have some GA days yourself and just the windows that opens up for you and, and the, the, how it makes your life easier. So talk to us a little bit about that, how it works for you, what you book there, how often do you do it and kind of how it's made your practice so much easier. Honestly, so when I first started at Crescent, it was something that they informed me of because we didn't, I haven't, didn't really rotate through the practice very much before, so I didn't really know about their GA days. But they mentioned it, and I was like, okay, that sounds great. But I didn't take it that seriously. I didn't see it that much as a benefit. I could not have been more wrong. Literally, it's the best thing that I would say you can have in a practice. And I don't mean you need to be running GA days for all your patients. But so the way it's run mm -hmm. at us, at our practice, it depends really how busy you are. Like the partners may have two GA days a month. Me and one of the other newer associates, we have probably one a month or one every two months. And what gets booked there is just, yeah, like you just said, your morbidly obese patients, your unhealthy patients that you don't really feel like sedating yourself, your kids, your deep exposures or, or supernumerary teeth that you don't want to take out and be worrying about the sedation, and then your big implant cases. It just mm. gives you so much peace of mind that you can just turn one half of your brain off and you're not focused on the sedation and you're just focused on the surgery. And it's such an enjoyable day. I think it opens so many doors and I know maybe some older practices or older surgeons say, ah, oh, I don't need a GA day and, and they may not. But if I was ever starting a practice moving on the forward and moving forward, I would for sure have a GA day built in. I think it's so good for a practice. Yeah. And one, one of the things you mentioned is it opens new doors. Well, the nice thing is you have a wide variety of procedures you're comfortable doing. And then you have certain procedures that are obviously you're going to do in the hospital. Mm -hmm. It's that middle area, that you gray it. area. Yeah. You don't feel comfortable doing it in the office. But listen, you're not burning your OR time doing all this in the hospital now. And, OR and I think that's one of the best things. Exactly. OR time is not like it's in the States where it's a dime a dozen, right? Like OR time yeah. in Canada is precious. And so if you're bringing, let's say, all your kids to the hospital or your morbidly obese patients to the hospital, well, then you're really cutting out of the time of your when you want to do your bigger surgeries in the hospital, right? You don't have unlimited resources to be able to do that. And especially right now with COVID, your hospital days are just getting canceled left, right, yeah. and center. You can't just keep backing your patients up waiting for the hospital time. Not to mention, most people want surgery in summer. And that's when the yeah. entire public healthcare system decides, we need to go to summer hours and yeah. cancel half the rooms and half for the For no hours. reason. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. So, no, that, that's really nice um, having, having that there. And that's something I've been doing here because since it's a GA day, you know, I can go as a fellow if I'm not doing anything else and just go do dental alveolar stuff, learn the ins and outs of that. You know, it's, as you said, it's bread and butter stuff, it's prior practice stuff, stuff you that need you need to, to do. know how to yeah. do. So much more comfortable to learn uh, under a GA environment and, and to feel comfortable doing the procedure. And one of the things you mentioned was doing big implant cases. So I placed a lot of implants in residency, like a lot. McGill, you know, we were we had great referrals from the dental school and the GPRs. So I think in my residency, I probably paced like around 250 implants. Nice. That's a good so amount. I felt, I felt very comfortable. I felt really good about it. But I did no all-on-four cases, yep. 
no zygomatic cases, no like immediate conversion cases, none of the fancy stuff. Yeah. And you know that that's a that's a really tough thing to learn. I know a lot of people go to courses and they you know they fly around the world to do that, but you kind of need the hands-on experience to learn that stuff. And these people are paying you once you're graduating. That's the other thing. You're right. They're paying you a lot. It's it's extremely expensive for them. Yep. And it's elective and it's cosmetic. It's it's really difficult. Yep. So one of the nice things here is, you know, Dr. Rick Capitan, he's one of the partners here. And Hunter Dawson, he's one of the prosthodontists here. And what they have is they've really built up a strong all-on-four and immediate conversion practice. That's awesome. That's amazing. They have consoles that come in all the time. And it's like, you know, full mouth clearance. Yep. Immediate, you know, alveoplasty, bone reduction, implants, immediate conversion. Like, it's just really cool stuff that I'd never seen before in residency. Yep. And I'm sure you would agree, but the first thing I realized is the hardest part of the whole process is all the prosthodontic stuff. Oh, like having a good prosto to kind of guide you through that, how much reduction you need, what your yeah. prosthesis is going to look like, what's the tooth show going to look like yeah. is invaluable because you can really screw up a case if you don't, if you're not working with a good prosthodontist or if you don't mm-hmm. have that knowledge yourself too, to kind of be able to be like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. And even the steps involved in the conversion and, and what they're looking for and how you make their job easier. Also, they can cover up a lot of your surgical oh. mistakes or positioning. Yeah. They really kind they're of They're your best friend sometimes. Yeah, they're your best friend. They camouflage a lot. Yeah. So been doing a lot of cases with them this year. And, you know, I got to give a shout out to Dr. Capitan. This is my first time really getting involved with these cases, but he's trusting me to, you know, to do the extractions, do the alveoplasty, place implants, you know, these these patients are paying tens of thousands of dollars. So for them to trust us, that is great. And now that I have started doing it, I will say it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. It's funny because some people make it look so easy. Like yeah. a bunch of our partners at, at our practice do do it and do it a lot. Like they're seeing all on force all the time. Yeah. yeah I'll, at the beginning, I, I would say in their ORs or like in their GA days and I would watch them and I'd be like, wow, that, that doesn't look that hard. But when you no, really get doesn't. to it. They're just making it look that easy. They make it look easy because if you think about it, especially now with technology and guides, you can have a bone reduction guide, implant placement guide, guided drills, and it just makes it look like it's so smooth and easy, but it's not. And, and it's it's super bloody. It's like always <laughs> messy. There's tons of like, you know, blood and dust and bone dust and everything just flying over the place. You have to follow certain instruments and certain protocols. So that's been a good experience, but very difficult. And something I think that you can just, not, it's just you can't do that without a GA day. Because I've seen it done before with IV sedation, but it's a mess. Well, as I say, you can do it. It's just so much more comfortable with a GA. Yeah. Like it really is. Yeah, it really is. You can take your time. It's way better for the patient. But yeah, I mean, most of I don't fault people because in Canada, OR time is so limited and you can't, a lot of ORs you can't use on, you know, prior practice stuff no. like this. No. You can't bring your equipment in. You can't use the time for that. So you're kind of stuck doing the office and you have to do it under uh under, G, uh, under like an IV sedation, a deep sedation most of the time, which is difficult. Yep. So awesome that you have that resource and definitely something I am jealous of and something that I will definitely miss next year. The next update we wanted to give was just a quick update. We had mentioned a previous podcast about the Dalhousie Medical Mini MBA that they're doing. This is, you know, kind of inspired by educating physicians and dentists about finance. And, you know, it's funny when you go through the stats are actually our number one most listened to episode of our podcast is our common sense investing episode with Ben Felix. It's not surprising. Honestly, it's not surprising. Not surprising because I think it's a topic that people would love to learn more about. Yep. It involves money. Everyone, and everyone cares loves about money. Everyone cares and loves about money. You know, you're always going to get listeners for that. Yeah. So they were kind of inspired and, and they've been doing basically a six week course on a variety of topics. So Ben Felix was one of their guests for the investing part. But then they had another guest for real estate. They had another guest for how much money are you going to make as a doctor, how to budget. Like, it's been really good. I've been tuning in every single week. And it's a, credit to them, it's available all for free online. If you want to check it out, it's www.medicalminimba.com. And they have recordings of all their lectures. I watched, you probably like this one. I watched a recent one on real estate. And it was amazing because I bet you're going to, you probably know all this information now because you just went through it with your home. But... His episode, he started off with a glossier of terms, and he just explains to you what a mortgage is, what is amortization, what is interest yeah. rate, how does your payments get affected, what is fixed rate, variable rate. These are all the terms you hear all the time. But you really and don't know. 
you really don't know until you've gone through it. Yeah. You don't know. Is this a good deal? Is this a bad deal? Should I do fixed? Should I do variable? What's a term? Yeah. What's all the stuff? How's, how does this work? Oh, how much can I spend? What are the budget rules? What is home insurance? Things like that. He goes through it. I learned a ton. I really, really enjoyed it. I think for people that are still not as comfortable in the financial world and want to learn more about this type of stuff, I would definitely recommend checking out. I think it's a great resource and I think it's awesome what these guys have done. No, that's that's really impressive for sure. And, and it is something that as you start making money, you can't just put your head in the ground and act like, all I got to yeah. do is make money. No, you have to make your money work for you and you have to be smart with it. Like, well, that's what's the point of just working, working, working. Like you have to do something with it. Exactly. So definitely check that out. High, high recommend from us. The next thing we wanted to talk about was we mentioned um, on a previous episode that we had the upcoming CRAOMS presentation. And uh, I was, you know, really, really fortunate enough to be invited to speak on behalf of Fellowship in the US. But I told you, I was excited for the talk because I wanted to listen to the other guests and I wanted to learn from them. Because they're just ahead of you too, right? They were just ahead of me and they're doing things that I want to do and I want to learn from them. So really enjoyed the talk. I think it was incredibly well done. Shout out to Alara Boyo and Emily Archambault, you know, the current and future CRAMS presidents for organizing a really great event. It was well attended. I think they got great feedback. I got some good feedback that people really liked the event and I learned a ton about, you know, prior practice associate, owning own your own prior practice, you know, different fellowship opportunities. So And like you were one of, and you were one of the panel speakers. So imagine the residents that are just listening in. What's yeah. even even better for them? Like that's great. Yeah. And I'm I'm a current fellow and I'm still learning all this stuff. Imagine if you're an R one and you're learning oh, this stuff from the get go. That's huge. You you're way ahead. So shout out to them. That was an awesome time. Really enjoyed that. And it's always nice. The you know normally we have our annual meeting and there's one lecture dedicated just to the residents for the residents. And unfortunately because the meeting was canceled. We didn't get that this year. So this was a nice substitute and a really nice event, I thought. Yeah. Um, the next thing I want to talk about was, speaking of a previous guest, you know, we had Mark Engelstad on the podcast in December. By the way, just as an, a side note, second most listened to episode ever, Mark Engelstad. Also not surprising. Also Man, not surprising. Great, great guest. Probably, you know, spread word of mouth that everyone wanted to listen to him and, yeah. and the interview. And mandible fractures. You know, people got to deal with this stuff. This the is private practice. Bread and too. butter this stuff. Just like money. You got to deal with it. You got to deal with it. Exactly. So people love that episode. And he had mentioned one of his big tips, you know, the 10 key points was two fractured mandibles or double fractured mandibles are more than twice as complicated as a single fracture. And I had to do a mandible fracture that had three fractures. It was a right angle, left parasympathesis and left subcondylar. And I let me just say, I was channeling my Mark Engelstad and I was thinking about it because it was way harder than three times. Like th- those, those individual fractures one at a time, it was beating no you sweat. up. It was, dude, it was beating me up and it was really difficult. Yeah. And it's what he said. The mandible, if it has multiple fractures, it can torque. It, it can, can pivot. Turn, it can rotate. It yeah. can pivot. Yeah. And it can, you look and you're like, wow, it looks great. But in another axis, it might not be. And it's just, oh, it was a mess. It yeah. was really difficult. It was really humbling. But, mandible fractures, I thought, you know, I was pretty much good to go now. But this was, it was a humbling experience. And so that's good to see, right? Because, yeah, it's almost like mandible fractures can be like a security blanket where you're like, oh. I got this. It's yeah. not a big deal. But then you get one that shows you, you know what? They can be tough. Like it's not just just a mandible fracture. Exactly. No, yeah. I, I totally agree. Not something to take for granted. Even as we said, you said humbleectomy. You always call oh. it with uh, wisdom teeth sometimes. Sometimes they, they break your back. Yep. And that leads us into our next topic, which was uh, something I want to talk to you about, a wisdom teeth day in private practice in the fellowship. So in January and February, I mentioned I was a little bit of a slower time. So in a couple of days we're off, they wanted to do this thing where they would schedule a day and it would just be nothing but wisdom teeth consults. That's so good for and you, then man. Another day would be nothing but wisdom teeth surgeries. Yeah. And I remember I was thrilled with the idea because, you know, the bread and butter. You can no matter how well trained you are, no matter where you're working, academics, private practice, fellowship, not fellowship, big cases, hospital headache, wisdom teeth keeps the lights on. It pays exactly. the bills. It's it's your basic thing. So getting more practice at that, I was totally okay with and, and, and really excited but i was laughing with you because i did this day of doing wisdom teeth and we <laughs> talked previously about how you know in residency i'm not doing 68 sets of wisdom teeth a day yeah so i did this one day one time of wisdom teeth and i couldn't feel my back <laughs> and my body was going into spasm and i was on the end of case number two. Oh, uh, my biggest advice is invest or find a good chiropractor and a good massage therapist for when you come back. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, granted, the cases were challenging, but I'm sitting there at number two. I'm, I'm breaking a sweat. Yeah, yeah. The mask is fogging up. I'm just thinking, this is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and this the is funny exhausting. thing is I'm, I'm picturing it, and it's like, yeah, 100% that's going to happen to every new grad. Every new grad, because in your chief year, and especially for you in your fellowship, what do you do? You do a ton of operating, but you don't do the bread and butter stuff. You're not taking out wisdom teeth. You're in the OR doing all the cool cases. Then yeah. your first week of private practice, what do you do? You're doing <laughs> none of that. Teeth. All you're yeah. doing is taking out wisdom teeth and you're like, what is going on here? Part yeah. of me is dreading. Sorry, I'm starting to dread July a little bit, just to come down from operating. I've gotten very used to and comfortable like going to the OR yeah. and doing cool surgeries and it's all just going to evaporate. Yeah, and it's, and it's so funny. And again, I'm not saying that those cool surgeries are easy. They're not. But you become accustomed to doing that kind of surgery. You become yeah. accustomed to to the specific tasks that you do in in orthognathic surgery, and you're never worried about the sedation because your patients are GA'd, and so you're yeah. just doing your surgery. As soon as you go to prior practice, you're not focused on that. You're focused on running your sedation. You're focused on the teeth. It's a very different experience. It's going to be a totally different lifestyle. That's yeah. what's nice about this podcast is we managed to capture the different phases of our life. Yeah, and you know, even for me, it was end of residency, fellowship. Now it's going to be the next phase. And the come down will be will be steep for sure. Uh, you know, it's funny we took a a famous picture with with Brian Farrell and myself for December being so wild, and it was like fifty eight cases, one hundred or thirty one days, fifty eight cases, one hundred jaws in this one month of December, which was just madness. You probably won't do that in your first three years. Back. Well, well, this is funny. I I took a picture of me with a paper, and I wrote December twenty twenty one. 31 days, zero jobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, and it's not me to be, to rain on your parade, but that's probably true. Or it's going to be maybe five jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be a smaller amount. Hopefully yeah. not zero, but yeah. definitely a smaller amount. The last thing we want to talk about in current events was a quick update on your Peloton. I mean, you had purchased this Peloton. I cannot express how jealous I am of you still. Every, every time I think of you on that bike, I'm just so jealous. But have you been keeping up? Have you been using it? How's it going on there? So that's actually an amazing question. And it's very good. So I got my Peloton January, I think like 10th or something like that, right? So pretty much almost at the, pretty much at the two-month mark today. Okay. And after the first three weeks, used it four to five times a week and I loved it. And, and I should say, I still do love it. But my life kind of went crazy busy after those mm. three weeks. I, I sold my condo. I bought a house. I got yeah. engaged. So there's so many things on my plate. So I really haven't been using it that much. Like I went down from using it four to five times a week to two times a week. And I'm pretty much using it Saturday and Sunday when I'm off. But okay. my point is, if I didn't have it, I'd be doing nothing Saturday and Sunday. I wouldn't be doing yeah. anything. So to, in my eyes, it's still still definitely useful, still valuable. And Lexi, she's still using it three to four times a week. So right now, I would say definitely still excited about it, still motivated about it. I'm almost, I want to get settled. I want to get all my other things back in order so I can go back to using it four to five times a week because I think it was awesome. Yeah, no, it's really great. Uh, I bet a lot of our listeners have one already. The one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I want to see if you notice it too, because it's the one thing that really annoys me about Peloton because I've used the app before just to do like a class yep. or do a trial or something like that. Yep. And the classes are phenomenal. Yep. The classes are amazing. The instructors are amazing. The music is top notch. Probably what they're most famous for. For sure. The soundtracks with the, with the classes and things like that. And I love their classes and I get a huge work and I'm sweating. What really annoys me is the last like few minutes of every uh, episode or every class, it turns into like, you know, this philosophical self-help life quote. Like, who can come up with the best quote for Instagram thing? It's, like, remember, it's just it's just ridiculous. Ever since, they all turn into like. And remember, if you're not your best self today, who will you be tomorrow? It's like all these just ridiculous lines that they've come up with. And honestly, Wendell, it's funny that you say that because actually we've never talked about this before. But I feel like that's in almost every market right now. Everyone's a self-help guru. And it's like, I just want to get my workout done. I don't really care about anything. Like I'm barely finishing this workout. Don't tell me that I'm a better self version of myself. Yeah, I'm about exactly. to fall off the bike. Just let me finish. Yeah, like take, take a picture and send it to me on Instagram and show me your sweaty confetti. I'm yeah. like, listen, bro, I'm, I barely made it through this class. Like, I can't unhook my feet from the clips right now. So like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, let's be a little more reasonable. So yeah. that's my one gripe with it. But no, of the 45 minute class, if three minutes of it is annoying, I mean, that's not too bad. Exactly. 
So that concludes our current events. Let's jump into our resident reminder. Okay, Oscar, so for this resident reminder section, we wanted to tackle kind of a big topic, but a very important topic. You know, we talked about bread and butter private practice before, but there are certain things in residency and, you know, major surgery that are also bread and butter. For example, not everyone's going to do a septorhinoplasty yeah. with a columnar strut graft in their residency, and that wouldn't be considered maybe bread and butter. But every single resident is going to deal with an ameloblastoma at some point during the residency, For and sure. likely at some point in their private practice, too. I, I was about to say, like, I wouldn't even limit this to just residency, right? Like, whether you're the first line of defense here, like maybe you're not the one doing the definitive treatment, but you're going to likely biopsy an ameloblastoma at some point in your career. And so you need to find out, or you need to not find out, hopefully you know already, you need to know how you're going to address that, whether that's referring to somebody else, but you need to know how to how to deal with this. So I would say it's bread and butter for everybody, not just residency. Yeah, I would agree. So to kick things off, this resident reminder is going to be all about the ameloblastoma. So there are three types of ameloblastomas. And what we're going to try and do is, we're going to tr this is a big topic. So we're going to go through the diagnosis and the management of these things. But we're also going to try and highlight things that, you know, sometimes you're forced to learn or forced to memorize that don't really matter at all. And yeah. try and give you a little bit of tips about what's, what's to prioritize learning and what not to prioritize. So there are three types of ameloblastoma. And this is something you have to know because the three types have radically different management. So it actually does matter. This one is patient. something that does matter. It's not just know it for knowledge. This is know it because it impacts your patients. Yeah. So the first type is the, it's called conventional solid or maybe it's multi-cystic. This is your conventional maleoblastoma. This is the one you're probably thinking of. This is the most common one by far, over three quarters. And this is the one that you will encounter the most often. Yeah. And the prevalence is somewhere, you know, middle age, maybe slightly older. And, you know, this is where they start talking about things like what decades of life does it happen? And, and what is the gender predilection? And where does it occur in the mouth? And what are the percentages? And I don't know if you agree with me, Oscar, but I think... It's useless to memorize all that information, but it's funny because I do find that when you do know some of that and you see a patient or you think of a differential, your mind eventually just remembers certain things and you kind of know, oh, this could be an ameloblastoma or this I, is more likely to be this because they're super young or super old. But I don't think it's that important to remember, oh, for example, ameloblastoma is equal in males and females. Like, what is that going to help you with? So I couldn't agree with you more. And a lot of times, like all the paths that you do will have these little tidbits. And I get it. I understand why they put it in there. But realistically, is it going to change your initial thought process or your initial management or your initial workup of this patient? Probably not at all, right? Like exactly. you're going to get advanced imaging most likely in these patients. You're going to do a biopsy. And then at that point, you're going to decide what the treatment is. Like knowing these things sure can help you give a, a better idea to the patient when you're in their consult, maybe. But does it really change much? I don't think it does. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I try and remember the ones that have, you know, huge outliers like Warthin's tumor is 90% male and it's the only one that can be like bilateral, for example, in the parotid. Yeah. Like things that are just like yeah. crazy one-sided or super unique. Yeah. But all the ones that are just kind of intermediate or kind of regular or within normal or within a close range. Or when they give you a range, it's like 20 to 40 year olds. Like, okay, well, half the thing's <laughs> hot. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> So, you know, they also say things like it's most common in the mandible. But even if you saw one in the maxilla, you're going to say, oh, this can't be a ameloblastoma because yeah, it's like, what does that get in the you? mandible. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So one thing that's really important is to know that a lot of times this is a asymptomatic presentation. So like a painless swelling or expansion yep. of the jaw. And that paresthesia of like the inferior alveolar nerve, for example, is uncommon. And this applies to pretty much almost all benign condi uh, conditions in the sense that they usually are nerve sparing, meaning they may compress the nerve, they may displace the nerve, but usually the patient isn't complaining about pain yeah. or paresthesia. Yeah. If they're complaining about altered sensation and paresthesia, you got to instantly think this is something malignant and you got to be way, way more worried than if they have no nerve symptoms at all. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, one thing you'll think about when you see this on a, a radiograph is a lot of times the first time you'll see this on a pan. Whenever you're thinking of radiolucency, 
for example, in the mandible with a pen, you got to think of your basics first and you got to line them up. And this is something you have to memorize and have to know because it's what you're going to see. So you're going to think, okay, dentigerous cyst, is there an impacted tooth? Is it around the crown? Could it be an OKC? Could it be an ameloblastoma? Could it be a myxoma? And usually you should have these four to five things. Like memorized right off the bam, bat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, bam, bam, bam. Because it's almost always going to be those. And that's the most common things. Yep. But they'll classically describe this on the radiograph as soap bubble appearance, honeycomb appearance, things like that. You know, it just looks like this really big radiolucent tumor in the jaw that's kind of expanding and displacing things. And it looks quite frightening sometimes if they get very large. Um, and again, it can even, expand a lot. Even like you're right. And even with this, like the saying, the typical appearance, again, I understand that it's important to know, but don't turn your brain off if it doesn't look like that. It's like, okay, yeah. it can still easily be that. It doesn't have to look like that. Yeah. Now, speaking of turning your brain off, for histology, there's all these like you know six different types, completely useless in my mind. For an amyloblastoma, I'm not saying histology is useless. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. you're going to treat them all the same. Yep. Who cares if it was desmoplastic versus basal cell versus ad, like adenomatous? Like, come yeah. on. Just I, I would I would skip the whole you know different types of histology as the management is always the same. So the big thing you need to know about amyloblastoma is that it infiltrates you know in cancellous bone past the periphery of the lesion before resorption becomes evident which what that is means really is important there really important so when you're looking at your pan you're seeing this soap bubble this radiolucency the infiltration is past that because it hasn't resorbed enough to show up on your radiograph now on a ct scan and as oscar mentioned you're getting advanced imaging it does delineate the extent a lot better but that's something to be careful so that eventually leads to your management exactly and how you prevent recurrence because of that phenomenon so what was your typical management, Oscar, and what were you guys doing at UFT when, when you guys saw ameloblastomas? So our typical management for ameloblastoma was like if it was biopsy and it was one of these multi-cystic ameloblastomas, it was a resection with a one centimeter margin was ours. Okay. Yeah. Same Same for us. So when you're mapping out, you got to look at the the diameter or the width of the lesion. You yeah. Add a centimeter on each side and you got to think, oh, a defect there. How am I going to repair this defect? Like residents also going to think a centimeter isn't small on each no. side. Like that's pretty yeah. big. It's pretty big. And some people say one to 1.5 centimeters. I think exactly. it depends on your institution and how conservative. I think one to 1.5 was more when they only had, for example, plain film imaging mm -hmm. because you really didn't want to underestimate the extent. For sure. Uh, now that we have CT scanning and pretty accurate, you know, guides or just, you know, even just measuring with a CT scan, I think one centimeter is fine. And that's kind of what we used as well. Yeah. So... That is the conventional or solid or multi-cystic amyloblastoma. That's the most common one you're going to see. You've got to know that. You're going to treat it for sure. And it's really, really important to know. That's the one that most dental students even know about. Some, a lot yeah. of dental students don't even realize that there are two other ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe some residents listening don't even realize that there's two other ones. Yeah. So the next one is called the unicystic amyloblastoma. So now this is more often in younger patients. And once again, we don't want you to memorize all these things, but... Even for me in my brain, I just kind of remember just from studying this all the time that unicystic was in younger patients. So when you do see a younger patient, you're thinking, oh, this could be a unicystic amyloblastoma. It's more common in the younger patient. And it's something that you're a little bit more worried about when you're seeing a younger patient with this radiolucency in the posterior mandible, for example. And this is funny where it's like we just made fun of knowing ages. And this is where one where it's like it actually kind of does help. It, it kind of does help. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah. this one. Exactly. So that's. I think our message is not ignore all ages, genders, locations completely, but there are certain ones that really help. AOT, upper yeah. impacted canine, yeah. maxilla. It's like, it's just the way it is. Everyone knows that. So it does help sometimes for sure. So, and ironically, you know, for unicystic amyloblastoma, the histopathology is actually incredibly important. <laughs> so we kind of sound like we're all over the place here, but we're trying to give you the key points that you need to know because the unicystic amyloblastoma, there's three histopathologic variants and mm -hmm. the treatment does change based on it. So the first one is luminal. The basically the three are luminal, intraluminal and mural. And the way you think of this is, you know, you have a cyst and you have the wall and you have the lumen inside and luminal means the amyloblastoma component and the epithelium is kind of in the luminal side. Yep. It's confined to the luminal surface of that cyst. For intraluminal, it's projecting, but it's projecting into the lumen, so towards the center. And the reason this matters so much is, if you think about a management, if you have a cyst and the tumor is inside, well, you don't care about what's inside. You're kind of happy. You're kind of happy. If you inoculate and curatize and get all that cyst and it's lining up, you've gotten everything out. Yeah. 
The last type is called mural, meaning it's infiltrating into the walls. And the problem with that one is because it's going through the walls, hey, maybe it went past the cyst wall like we talked about before. Exactly. And you may have bought yourself a resection again. Now, with this mural, this is a controversial one because some people say you can just do an inoculation curatage. How much of it is really past the wall? Wait for a recurrence. Some people say not. You should resect right away. I didn't see many of these, but we kind of treated it if it was mural and it was, you know, especially transmural going across the whole wall. We would treat it similar to a, a conventional one and do a resection. How did you guys that's kind funny, of approach that's that? Funny that you say that because I was just thinking of that. I don't think I saw any mural melanomas. And, and, okay. and then I was, as, as we were talking, I'm like, how would I have treated this? And because again, you have to think this is likely, or not likely, but more likely going to happen in a younger population. Yeah. Are you going to jump just to resection? To yeah, it? Or, that's are, tough part. or are you yeah. going to wait and be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to treat this as a curatage and let's see if it comes back. That is a tough, tough question in that case. Yeah, exactly. So that's something to keep in mind with the mural one. Some people will treat it like a conventional. Some people will still be a little more conservative. I don't think there's a right answer there yet. People kind of have success rates with both, but you have to remember for a unicystic amyloblastoma, the three types matter and your treatment varies widely yeah. based on what it is. Our last type of amyloblastoma, the third type is called the peripheral amyloblastoma. This is something I've never seen. I don't know if you've ever seen a case. I've actually never seen one. I've seen two. You've seen two? Okay. Yeah, good. but still very low, right? Like between both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. very low. And it's usually a painless, non-ulcerated, you know, sessile or pedunculated gingival mass. This is the weird one because it's peripheral. It's on the gingiva. It kind of falls under those, you know, perilous or perilides that we all learn. Yeah, you know, the pyogenic granuloma. Yeah. The P's. The four P's. Everyone's yeah. the P's. Yeah. Now you got your fibroma. You got your pyogenic granuloma, peripheral ossifying fibroma. Yeah. You know, peripheral amyloblastoma is something you have to think of. And kind of similar to unicystic amyloblastoma, sometimes you just remove it and you only find out after on the final pathology. Exactly. That's what it was. Yeah. The good news is it's that's not it. like the other type. That's it. You're done. Yeah. You do a little excision and a very low recurrence rate. And it's, you know, if any of it comes back, if you do a, a further excision, it kind of almost re always results in, uh, in, in cure. Yep. So that's what's, that's what's nice about the peripheral one, but it's something you have to remember. So those are the three types, multi-cystic, unicystic, peripheral. And At some point, you're going to be asked about a beloblastoma. So this is something you should know well. Yeah. And the conventional type is the one that you're going to be asked about the most for sure and the management of, and you're going to have to treat patients with this. So it's a good thing to learn. Um, it's also good to maybe for the, for the surgeons out there, the graduates out there to always remember, no matter what you think something is, no matter how obvious it looks, you know, take a biopsy, send it to a, a pathologist, get a, get a read on it. If the pathology result doesn't really match what you think it is or what it could be, listen, no harm in a second biopsy. I agree because it's going to happen to you too, especially. And sometimes when you're in a resident or in the hospital, it's easy to just redo a biopsy, right? Or just to redo something and be like, oh, just come back in. Mm. In private practice, don't be scared to redo a biopsy because sometimes you'll take a sample and you're like, this is this for sure. And the report comes back and it's like, that doesn't match. Like, or that's yeah. way more benign than what I think this is. Like, I'm going to bring you back for another biopsy. Exactly. Yeah. And you got to think if you, if you get the report and it, and it just doesn't match what you think, that's a red flag going off in your brain. That red flag is going off for a reason. Yeah. It's, it's all your previous experience, your previous knowledge, all your studying saying, 100%. listen, I don't know what's going on, but something seems wrong. Something's up. You can talk to the pathologist. Sometimes the pathologist also can do like different cuts and do a second reading or, or refer to maybe a more experienced oral pathologist and get yep. kind of a second opinion. And then if you explain to the patient, like, listen, this is what the result came back. I feel more comfortable if we did a second sample just to make absolutely sure because the management will range completely differently based on what the biopsy is. People are going to understand that. They're going to be happy that you're, you know, you're, I agree. you're, you're being, uh, you're following being up. thorough. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so don't be afraid of that. And if you are doing biopsies and you're getting these results, also good to know, you know, which oral surgeons in your local area, if you're not treating that yourself, who kind of does that a lot? You know, who can you refer to? Always nice to refer to other oral surgeons and keep it kind of within the specialty, yep. whether it's benign pathology, malignant pathology. You know, it's nice to keep that network going and and kind of refer to colleagues that, that do specialize in that or do treat that. And that you know are going to do good work for your patients. That's great. Yeah, exactly. So that concludes our resident reminder. We hope you really enjoyed it. That was a, kind of a, a big topic, but an extremely important one. And something that we definitely wanted to mention at some point. So that's the email blastoma. And let's move on to our next topic, which is Journal Club.
All right, Oscar, we have a couple of articles to go through. The second article is really just kind of a, a quick touch on just to discuss it a little bit. But our main article is actually from the IJOMS. Now, one thing I've been doing since actually a listener suggested it was if JOMS is a little bit dry that month, not that great. You're going to venture I also, out. I kind of venture out a little bit and check out some of the other journals. Yeah. And IJOMS just happened to have a publication that was related to an exact topic I wanted to discuss with you and something that I'm actually trying to figure out myself right now as a person that's going to be going into practice and making all these decisions and having to make some decisions right now. Yep. And the article is entitled, Effects of Throw Packs During Orthognathic Surgery, a Double-Blind Randomized Controlled Clinical Trial. This was published in the IJOMS March 2021 by Faro et al. Pre-screening. It's an oral surgeon and anesthesia team from Brazil. We like the collaboration. We like For the sure. fact that oral surgery is anesthesia. International they, from Brazil. They do a lot of they do a lot of orthognathic there, so I like it. Oh, oh they do? Oh, okay. Ton, you would know. Ton. You're the Uruguayan here. You, you kind of know the South American connection. So they do, they do a ton in Brazil? Yeah, they do. Oh, wow. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. So, okay, so great experience from Brazil then. And what I really liked is it's a double-blind, randomized controlled clinical trial. Now, I was interested to see... How is that possible? Because, you know, some trials are just not possible to be double-blinded. Yeah. But I was like, let's see how this goes. Yeah, I didn't getting really get that at the beginning either. Yeah. Yeah. So getting into the study, why is this even a question? And first off the bat, it'd be interesting to see from our listeners. Some of you are thinking you always use a throw pack. Mm-hmm. Some of you are thinking I never use a throw pack. Mm-hmm. Some of you are thinking I use a throw pack for certain things. And I think those are the three camps. Never use it, always use it, or certain surgeries. For example, some people say... During a trauma, there's little screws, little tiny things, wires that can get dislodged and they can swallow. Maybe some people will say only during, you know, a full mouth clearance, tons of little bits of teeth, things can fall back and they can aspirate. So some people use it for different procedures. So we'll start off the bat with saying, Oscar, do you use a throw pack? Which camp are you in? All the time, never, or sometimes? And so are you asking me when I'm doing my cases in the office or are you asking me when I was a resident in training or now that I'm assist in the OR? Which one are you asking me? All three. I want to know about all three. So sedations, all my patients get a throat pack and that's because it's an open airway, right? So every patient, like for me, that's a no brainer. Like Like a throat screen gauze in the back. Exactly. Yeah. We're irrigating. There's teeth like always. So that's for me, that's a no brainer in my sense. Okay. So then we go to now currently in the OR. I'm a surgical assist for my for my cases in, in, in the practice that I work at. And I would say almost always a throw pack is being put in to all our cases, whether that's a, like a path case or an orthognathic case or a big reconstruction case. Yeah, pretty much it's, there's always a throw pack in. And then I'll go further back to my residency. That was really staff dependent. Okay. Some of our staff didn't matter the case. Throw pack was going in. Didn't matter the case. Other staff was pretty much never put a throw pack in. And then there was some stuff, like you were saying, kind of selective. Yeah, you know what? For like full mouth clearance, there's so many little beats of teeth. All these clearances you're doing, the teeth are not in great shape. So they're, they're going to break up. We put a throw pack. Other bigger cases, nope, no need for a throw pack. So, for example, you're with Marco Caminiti doing a double jaw. Throw, throw pack's pack going in. Throw pack's going in. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing that same double jaw with our, one of our younger stuff, Carl Cuddy. Throw pack likely not going in. Not going in. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. So... And I'll, and I'll kind of explain my experience and kind of what I'm thinking at the end after we go through the study, because this is an active thing that I'm trying to figure out right now. So the reason for this study and the reason for throw packs in general, people are thinking two things. The first is that you're preventing against aspiration or ingestion mm-hmm. of loose tooth bits, screws, everything we talked about, foreign bodies. You're also thinking, okay, maybe there'll be less blood and exactly. fluid, especially yep. blood yep. that gets in the stomach. Blood is a huge you know, nauseant, cause a lot of post-operative nausea and vomiting is what we were told. So that it prevents that as well. So the study is saying, you know, the average incidence of post-operative nausea and vomiting after general anesthesia is 36%. It's quite high. Yeah. And in orthognathic surgery, the rate was 40% in single jaw maxillary surgeries. And it can reach up to 56% in bimaxillary surgeries. And think about it. That's if not over surprising Over half though. of your cases are... are getting nausea and vomiting afterwards with all the medications, oh. all the anesthetic drugs, yeah. the surgery you're doing. You know, a lot of people say the number one most discomforting feeling they felt was nausea and vomiting. People, For hate sure. that. people hate that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And especially um, having, imagine having that feeling when your face is swollen like a potato. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like it'd be way worse. Exactly. 
And the reason why some people are against it is, you know, first of all, the question, does it do anything? Does it actually help with these things? A big, big reason is the use of a throat pack has been associated with post-operative throat pain. That's a lot of increased sore throat from it. And then other uh, people argue, you know, they've had retained throat packs. People have left throat packs in. Yep. There are case reports of people dying from a retained throat pack. You talk to a lot of oral surgeons, a lot of staff, almost all of them have an anecdote about the one time the throat pack was left in. Yeah, so it's um, not without risk to just put the throat pack in there. Yeah. And the thing is, with the proper kind of anesthesia count, nurse count, everyone's on board, you know, you, you can do things to mitigate leaving it in or preventing these risks. But if it's something that it causes post-operative sore throat or mucosal damage, that's not something really you can prevent. No. So the methods of this study was a randomized double-blind control trial, as we said. The inclusion criteria was they wanted healthy ASA 1 or 2, ages 8 to 16 years, and they're having jaw surgery. And they excluded some patients that had a previous history of post-operative nausea vomiting. Which is good. You know, yeah, which is good. Different yep. kind of metabolic and uh, health concerns that maybe you know, lead to having increased risk of nausea and vomiting. If there was multiple attempts at a nasoendotracheal intubation... Uh, with multiple operators, multiple techniques, maybe they're thinking that's going to be a little more bloody. It's kind of yeah. a confounding variable. They'll get rid of that. And they really wanted to kind of standardize the medications that they were giving before, during, afterwards. So if you had an allergy to some of those medications, they would exclude you because you can't follow their strict protocol. Now, as I mentioned, I wanted to learn how are they doing this randomization and blindness. So I thought it was pretty funny. What they did is, you know, they did a randomization computer-based, which is fine. And then they're placed into opaque and sealed envelopes. This is standard practice for a randomized control trial. So the envelopes, you know, contain basically, should you put a throat back in or should you not put a throat back in? And the envelope was delivered to the evaluator, by the evaluator, sorry, to the anesthesia team, who then informed the chief surgeon whether or not he's supposed to put a throat back in. The evaluator remained outside the operating room at the time of throat pack insertion and also stayed outside at removal part extubation. So I guess the idea here is that the evaluator... Doesn't know. Doesn't know. The patient obviously doesn't know because they're asleep. Now, the only problem is we've all seen like, you know, when you're doing an operation, you know, there's like a million times during the case where someone will say, is there a throw pack or is there no throw pack? Or, you know, the nurse changing shift or doing a count? And then at the end, throw pack out? Yeah throw, yeah, throw it back out. The, the, yeah. the count by the nurses. Yeah. Also, that throw pack creeps up a little bit. Sometimes you're operating, you just see it kind of bubbling, yeah. but, you know, behind the tongue. So a little, a little bit difficult, I think, to double line. Now, if the evaluator just literally was only responsible for kind of staying in the corner, monitoring the surgery, and then talking to the patients afterwards, that's great. You're avoiding that kind of operator influence. But it's just kind of funny that they, you know, they did try and go all the extra mile. That was pretty line, good. Randomized yep. control. I thought that was really, really good. Of note... Uh, TIVA was used, so total intravenous uh, anesthesia, so no uh, inhalational agents. A lot of them can, you know, really lead to post-operative nausea and vomiting compared to propofol, which really decreases that. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And basically, they wanted to look at, you know, do they have sore throat? Do they have nausea and vomiting? Do they have dysphagia? The way they evaluate this is pain. They would just use the visual analog scale. It's pretty standard. For nausea and vomiting, they're using if there's none, if it's mild, if it's moderate, it's severe. That kind of looks at, you know, how much... Uh, vomiting they're having or how many episodes they're having and dysphagia was basically are they able to swallow liquid yeah. are they able to tolerate a liquid diet and are they having a sore throat and they would talk to the patients so for the results uh, section the average duration of the procedure was the same between the two groups so that's really good because you want duration of anesthesia to be kind of similar they had a statistically significant increase in sore throat with a throat pack they had a statistically significant increase in dysphagia with a throw pack. Most importantly, they had no significant difference between post-operative nausea and vomiting, whether or not you use a throw pack or not. Yeah, so like, it makes sense once I hear it out loud, but I am surprised. Yeah, I, I was surprised as well. They even commented that, you know, one of the reasons for the use of the throw pack is to prevent the inflow of blood into the stomach to reduce post-operative nausea and vomiting. But they said there's little evidence that the throat pack is an effective barrier. And there's tons of other factors that are related, which is true because it'll soak up liquid, but it'll soak up the saline, the irrigation. I mean, that that, that throat pack is not like an impregnable no. sponge that's just going to soak everything. <laughs> Things are going to go around behind it. Also, you have the nasal intubation. There's sinuses that are bleeding. Lafort down fracture is pouring in the yeah. back. Yeah. It's avoiding the throat pack a lot of the time. So 
you're right. It's kind of the thing when you when you read about it and you think about it, it makes sense. But I was definitely surprised. One red flag I will point out for the study is they talked about the intraoperative blood loss volume. And I've noticed this in a lot of orthopedic studies, but they said that their average blood loss in the study was 588 cc's, which was higher than a systematic review, which was 436, but lower than that by reported by another article, which was 650. And it says no patient in the study required a blood transfusion. And I've seen this commonly in orthopedic publications where people talk about like, really high blood losses I was gonna and say. whether or not they needed to use transfusion. And I don't know what's going on here, but, you know, you know, granted now I'm in a fellowship, we do orthopedic surgery insanely fast. Blood loss is like 50 to 100 cc's. But even yeah. residency, you know, it was 150, maybe 200. We, the thought of a blood transfusion was, didn't even cross our minds. Yeah, yeah. And like, okay, fine. You know what? You get that one tough case where it's really bleeding. But yeah. the, for the average of their cases to be that high, yeah. I, was, I was like, wow. Tough control with blood pressure. Yeah, it can maybe happen. A hypertensive patient. Tough, tough to find the arteries. DPA, something's bleeding. Yeah. You hit something. Yeah, yeah. you hit You're it. You hit it up. before you completely down fracture, so it's lo- like, like for sure. I can see it, but like that's your average of that's fifty-four average, exactly. cases. Yeah, we're not talking about like an outlier here. You know, this yeah. is this is a lot. So it was nice that they had a, a good amount of people. As you said, fifty-four cases, twenty-seven in each bracket, and. What was really nice is that they kind of clearly showed with, with with very good evidence that there's no evidence for arthropec use, especially when it comes to postoperative nausea and vomiting, and how it's actually having a hindrance because these people are having sore throat afterwards. Now, the other aspect of the throat pack we talked about was foreign body aspiration, but everyone I've talked to since then has said, well, listen, you have a cuffed tube in place now. This was a big concern before yep. you had cuffed tubes, and it's kind of, you know, because people grew up without cuffed tubes, you had a throat pack to prevent, and then... When cuff tubes came out, people were so used to throw back, they just kept using it. But with a cuff tube, it should prevent any kind of aspiration or anything going into the lungs. Granted, they could ingest something into their stomach, but that should be very rare. So what, do you, that, you, you, what that, do you think you'll do going forward if, if you're in the OR and it's your case? Like, what are you going to do? What, do you, but, what are your thoughts? So I'm going to lead to that question. I'm going to follow the point you brought up, cuffed and uncuffed tubes. And I'm going to ask you a question before I answer yours is the sense that so we're running the surgery. We all want to be in control. We're all happy and, and everything like that. But I don't know how it was in your training program. How much say did your anesthesia team have with regards to the throw pack being put in or not put in in your program? Dependent. I think it depended on the case. Definitely pediatric patients, they were like, are you placing the throw pack or we're going to place it? That, that's what I was getting at, right? There are some situations where it does, it's not really even in your hands anymore. It's like, yeah. this is our airway. And that's they were very strong about it. Not all, but some of them would be, this is our airway. When are you putting the throw pack in? It wasn't a discussion. Are you putting a throw can- pack, yeah. pack in? It's like, when are you putting it in? And they kind of look at you sometimes when you don't put it in. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, you mean exactly. Throw pack in? Exactly. Definitely agree. That's something that you have to kind of manage with the anesthesia team. For me, it's been tough to kind of figure out what will I do going forward? Because in my residency, every staff except one plays the throw pack. Here, every single partner except one places a throw pack. For myself... When I was staffing my infection and trauma cases, I was using a throw pack. It's just the more and more I think about it, you know, there are risks with the throw pack. This, this is a great study that clearly shows adverse effects of throw packs, and it doesn't actually do what I was hoping it would do. And I'm starting to question if it, there's even a point and in using so them. This is where it becomes, I think, harder to implement things that are not the norm when you are a younger surgeon. If you're a surgeon that's been practicing for 50 years and you decide that you're not going to place a throw pack and you do it and then you have an adverse reaction for some reason, you can defend it pretty easily. Even if you're going against the norm, because most people do put throw packs nowadays. That's that's just the norm. And if you're a young surgeon and you have even literature to back you up, but you have an adverse effect and you didn't place a throw pack, it's a lot harder to defend, which really shouldn't make influence our decision making like the, the science should influence our decision making but yep. it is some it's a real life question that you do have to think about exactly and that's the problem is that it does impact us and you said you don't you don't have the clout yeah kind of you haven't earned anything yet. Norman, you haven't earned anything yet makes it way more difficult so something i'm still thinking about i've stopped using them for now because i, I do agree with this article uh since i read it and also a lot of people I've talked to that don't use it, they say, absolutely, there's absolutely no indication. People are just used to using them and it makes them feel better. Yep. But there's no true indication for it. So 
We'll see. Something to think about going forward, definitely. And I like this article because it's an incredibly well done paper, very good study, and has actually like a, a really big impact on our specialty. Yep. And, and I think it's something that you will, at least in most residency, it'll come up once or twice. People ask you. It's not like an exam question, but it'll be a, a conversational question. It's like, oh, what do you think about this? So I thought yeah. it was good. Exactly. The other journal we wanted to mention just briefly was actually published in Jameis. And this article is entitled The Predictive Hole Technique, a Technical Note, and it's by Quasi et al. You know, we just wanted to touch on this really briefly for a couple of reasons. The first of all is, for those not familiar, a technical note is an article that's really not so much a scientific study to evaluate, you know, data and different case series or, or double blind trials. It's really just a way of saying we've invented something or this is something we do. It's presenting we something. Presenting something. Yeah. And they're really nice because it's usually, there's strict criteria. It's not like these bozo, you know, <laughs> conferences where people just come up with something insane and they're yeah. just telling you what they do in their prior practice and it works great in their hands and, you know, they have all this anecdotal stuff. This is people coming up with like pretty innovative stuff and trying something new and they're trying to publish it to be like, I think this could help you in your practice. Too. Yeah. Yeah. They're not saying you have to do with this, but they're like, you may be able to use this. You may be able to use this. Yeah. And I, I really like these technical notes because they're usually kind of technology based or kind of innovative. I don't know. I always really like them. This is the first one we've had on this show. And basically what they were trying to do is help people avoid the need of purchasing custom plates. The cost. It's a big cost. The big cost of, in, in Canada is a big, big issue. Yep. And all they did was kind of say is, listen, the big advantage of custom plates is that obviously they're custom. So when you do your resection, for example, and you have your mandible in two pieces and it's in a new spot, you can put that recon plate on and it kind of clicks in place, you know, where it needs to go. But a huge advantage is the predictive holes, meaning the holes you drill for your surgical guide and your resection guide are the exact same holes that you will then use to fixate your recon plate. Yep. And what they've done is they've just shown a case and kind of explained how you can do the exact same thing with a standard recon plate that you just bend to a stereolithographic model. So they're saying you can 3D print, you know, the mandible with the resection, you can bend your recon plate. And then when you build your cutting guides, just make sure some of the holes for the cutting guides Extend. are the same. Yeah, exactly. As your recon plate. So I really like this article. I thought it was like an innovative way to really help with the burden of cost. What did you think, Oscar? Especially because we're not in like the free market in the States where everyone can get a custom plate. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's actually really valuable. In my practice, am I planning on doing anything like this? Because am I doing any fibulas? No, that's not. I'm not going to be an academic. I'm not going to be in these institutions. But for someone like, yeah, like, like the surgeons who are doing this at our hospitals, I think it might be a way where they can get the predictability without having to have the cost for, let's say, every case. Yes, the really tough ones, you're still going to go for VSP because they even admit here it's not going to replace yeah. it. But yeah. for, let's say, slightly easier cases or for more straightforward ones, this may be a great tool to use. Yeah, I immediately forwarded it to my staff at McGill because we have the 3D printing lab there. We're doing in-house VSP, but we, we were never doing predictive holes for a recon plate. So although we'd have our cutting guides, yep. it would never be fixated with a predictive hole and then use that for the recon plate. It was more like, here's our cutting guide. Here's our resection. Let's put the pre-bent recon plate and hope it kind of fits really well. Or we'll probably have to tweak it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So uh, instantly saying this could be a game changer. And then I know at U of T, they're also building a 3D lab and trying to do more of this stuff exactly. as well. So I think it's really nice for Canadian surgeons that are in this space. I get for a lot of people, this is like totally irrelevant. You're not going to need to do this stuff. But a good technical note, we wanted to introduce that kind of paper to the podcast and say, if you are into that kind of like 3D printing and, you know, cutting guides and maybe resections and that, definitely check out this article. It's a, it's a really, really good one. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And it's kind of funny. It's like, you use a marking pen, clear rope, and here you go. <laughs> yeah, this is like the wax, the wax makes yeah. a return. Yeah. Uh, this was, like, know, the, this was like the Dollarama version of a VSP plate. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it passed our pre-screening because of the technical note. We wanted to talk about that for the first time. Yeah. And it's an oral surgeon, uh, Cook County, Chicago, big program. It was nice. You know, shout out to them. And I, I really like that. I really like the people doing that. Uh, that concludes our Journal Club. And now let's move on to our final segment, Recommendations. All right, Oscar. So recommendations, we've talked about this a lot. It's quickly become a lot of people's favorite part of the podcast. A lot of people are following our recommendations. They're telling us if they liked it or didn't like it. We constantly track each other's recommendations and, and, and say if we liked it or not. 
quick update. Remember, we, we said this segment has now become like, let's talk about what we talked about before, and then we'll move on to yeah. what we're going to talk about next. Well, you recommended Your Honor. Yeah. It's teed up. It's ready to go. I'm waiting for my family to arrive tomorrow because I'm going to watch it with my wife at the same time. So that'll probably be maybe next podcast. You're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to be. It's good. Yeah. So excited for that. Definitely going to watch that. The other thing I wanted to tell you was Formula One Drive to Survive. I was obsessed with it. I recommend it to you. You're obsessed with it. For our listeners, I think it's probably the strongest show we've recommended to the two of us. For sure. The two of us. For sure. It is just so good and so addicting. And season three is coming out March 19th. So pumped. I cannot wait. It, honestly, Wendell, it, it's so good that, like, not just our listeners, but Lexi annoys me now. And she's like, when is the new when season coming back? out? Like, yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah. And it's to the point where I messaged Bianca and said, dude, season three is coming out March 19th. And she responds, like, awesome. Yeah. Like, she's just as pumped. Too. Exactly. So, yeah. Really, really fun. So those are the kind of the two updates we have. My recommendations, you know, have been on the things I'm trying to catch up on and get more up to speed on from back in the day. This ironically followed that theme, but was unintentional. I had another person recommend and play. We were actually watching together. Basic Instinct, the movie. I don't know. If, have you ever seen this movie, Basic Instinct? No. Have you heard of it? I have. And like, you know, it's a name where you're like, oh, I've heard this for, but I have no idea what it's about. Exactly. It's from 1992. I'd heard of it. You always hear Basic Instinct. It's with Sharon Stone, Michael Douglas. It's crazy watching because they're like super young. I never watched this movie. It is phenomenal. Oh, okay. It is just phenomenal. It's like a thriller, murder, mystery kind of thing. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Now, there's a couple of reasons why. The first thing is Michael Douglas is a solid actor. Yeah. And this is him early in his career, but he's a solid actor. He's, He's usually always good in all his movies. Sharon Stone is not only phenomenal in this movie, but for people that have seen the movie, like she at the time, she came out as a total, not only like sex symbol, but kind of like just like an icon, like a goddess. Oh. Kind of thing. Because she was just so enthralling in this movie, so seductive, so attractive. And that was part of her kind of femme fatale type of character she's in this movie. It's just a phenomenal so movie. So worth no watching. Spoilers. Oh, hard recommend no spoilers obviously i'm sure most of our audience have always watched it but the people i was watching with their all comment was man i haven't seen this movie in like 20 years and it's still just as good and i was like i've never seen it ever it's amazing <laughs> okay so that's, that's a definite recommend oscar you have to watch this movie and we have to talk about this okay i'm gonna watch it before a, next time before we have to film next time. yeah 100 yeah, percent. hard recommend and for those this is not a spoiler but for those that have watched it there is that one famous scene that everyone has that seen the movie remembers, and yeah, it was quite surprising. Is all I'm gonna say that one scene, and Oscar, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, when you watch right. the movie. You'll know. <laughs> I'll see you next time what it is. Okay, my like I told you, my last month has been insane. So really, I haven't been watching much TV at all. You've been watching like, like the Home Improvement Channel, or like like, like literally, you know? like I've been on House Sigma every day, being <laughs> like, like what's the resale value in the area that I just bought? Like, like that's all I've been doing realistically, or looking up contractors, or or and and been on the phone with banks and emailing banks about mortgages left, right, and center. So yeah, in terms of TV viewing, I haven't done anything. My my more recommendation here will be if you guys are in the process, which you're probably going to be next year in the process of buying a house, mm. make sure that you either do get like you shop around for your mortgage rates that you that you work hard to get your best rate. Don't just go to a bank because you've been working with that bank and just be like, oh, I'm going to trust them. Because yeah. that's not really how it is. Like, okay. make sure that that yes, you're, you you need the mortgage, but you're giving the bank business. So make sure you're getting something out of it. Um, that would be my recommendation right now because it is so important. If not, like the first time, like when I got my my condo, it was just like, oh, we're just gonna go with this, and it was so naive. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I probably could have got the better rate or so many more incentives another way. Yeah, that's a great point because I would have thought you have a long-standing relationship with your bank. Keep it simple. It's all in the same kind of thing. That is kind of the tendency. And it's not that that's useless. That that might that bank might get you the best rate. But if you don't present any counters to them, they're going to give you their first rate, which may not be their best rate. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a great tip and could save, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, in the long term. A hundred percent. And another thing I will give recommendation, it's more like obviously the people who are older and have practices already know this, but the people who are graduating, this is a one time where you should use your professional designation to your advantage. Okay. Like you will get kind of preferred rates at banks. Like tell them, tell them everything about yourself. And I, and I think it is useful for that. 
Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And we're we're not a credit risk, you know, for no. when it comes to mortgage or prices. Like they love dentists, they love oral surgeons. We're one of the highest credit scores, so I definitely think you should use that to your advantage. And you know, it, it, little percents here and then in negotiations and uncomfortable conversations now saves you tons of money in the future. T- tons, and so that's good that you say that. The other recommendation I'll be is, I, it's not haggling. But don't be afraid or don't be embarrassed to try to get what's best for yourself. Yeah. No, I like that. That's that's really good. Some little life advice from you going through this whole process. Hopefully, eventually you'll be a little more settled. You can start what you know, just crushing TV shows like you normally do. March, like you said, March twenty first. It's starting. No, March nineteenth. No, March nineteenth. I'm in my new house, the seventeenth. So that's perfect. Perfect. Yeah, get, <laughs> get the TV screen ready to go. March nineteenth. Yeah. <laughs> We're just gonna blitz through the whole season, probably. <laughs> We're definitely gonna be discussing that on the next episode. So something to look forward to. Um, that wraps up this episode of Teeth and Titanium. Thank you so much to our loyal listeners and for all of you for tuning in. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send us some feedback, recommend a guest, ask to come on the show, give us a recommendation, whatever you want to do. We always love hearing from you. Our email is teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Oscar, it was great talking with you. Yeah, and we'll see you next month. <laughs>